0: Okay, so we are studying um, the book of Acts. We're 18 chapters in. We finished last week with the very end of Paul's second missionary journey. He went on three missionary journeys. We covered the first one, the end of the second one, and then that journey uh, ends in verse 22 of chapter 18 and it picks up in verse 23 of chapter 18. So today we're gonna start Paul's third missionary journey And I have provided a map for you to help you get some context. Are you ready? Good. So what you're looking at here is the beginning leg of Paul's third missionary journey. Now I said a moment ago that we we went through, uh, this is his third. So most of his journey started here in Antioch, okay? His first one went here, he he went, went here, here, went up here, I don't want you to go this far. He went here and then he went up and then he kind of did, there's another city named Antioch and he went up here and he just kind of did a loop down to Derby and then he came back here. So the first one was typically pretty short, but on the first one he planted most of these churches up in this area. On his second missionary journey, he stayed here in Antioch and he went up to Derby and to Lystra. He went up here, he went over to Greece, he went down to Corinth, uh, and then he traveled over to Ephesus. And then we know he went back here and then back. So on his second journey, he kind of made this big loop. We're starting his third journey and on his third journey, he's going to go back and he's going to visit the churches that he planted on his first missionary journey. And then he visited on his second missionary journey. So these guys right here, they're getting like triple doses of Paul. Okay, they're getting a lot of Paul. Now you may think, oh, that's kind of unfair, because they get, they get like three visits. Well, what we're going to learn today is that when he eventually, on this third one, gets to Ephesus, he stays in Ephesus for almost three years. Okay, now on his second journey when he was over here in Corinth, we know he stayed in Corinth for 18 months. So he is staying in some places longer than others, even though these guys are getting more visits. So once he gets to Ephesus, now we're only going to cover the end of 18 and 19 today. This journey will travel, his, his third missionary journey will go all the way through Acts 20. Um, so just kind of for reference, and you'll see this next week, from Ephesus, he's going to go up he's going to go over, visit Philippi, come down to Corinth, and then he's going to head back over to Ephesus. Well, not actually Ephesus, just kind of south of Ephesus. He's going to meet with the elders of Ephesus and he's going to start making his final journey back to Jerusalem. And that's the one we're familiar with. He gets arrested in Jerusalem, then he's on house arrest and he gets taken back to Rome. So this purple line, this is the first leg of his third missionary journey. I want you to kind of commit this to memory because we're going to reference some of these places and this is where we're headed today. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Go to Acts chapter 18. We're going to pick up in verse 23. <clears throat> so after spending some time there, where is there? There was Antioch. That's where he finished his second journey. So he's camping out there, he's getting refreshed, rejuvenated. And after he spent some time there, he departed. He began his third journey, and he went from place to the next excuse me. He went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Those are the uh, areas we just showed you. That's uh, Derby and Lystra. And he was strengthening all the disciples. So while he's in that region of Galatia with those churches, Lystra, Derby, the writer of Acts, which is Luke, is gonna pause and he's gonna draw attention to something taking place over in Ephesus. Okay, so Paul at this point is over in Galatia And this guy named Apollos shows up in Ephesus. Let's continue to verse 24. This is now a a Jew named Apollos who was a native of Alexandria. Where's Alexandria? Egypt. All right, so he's an Egyptian Jew and he's coming up to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man and he was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. We don't know how he got saved, but he somehow got saved along the way. And he was fervent in the spirit. This joker loved preaching the gospel, and he was good at it. So he spoke and he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew about John's baptism. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. These were friends that Paul had met on his second missionary journey. They were tent makers. They were good friends. When Paul had gone back to Antioch, Priscilla and Aquila stayed there in Ephesus. So they're there. Apollos comes, and Aquila and Priscilla are listening to Apollos preach, and they're like, you know, this guy, is, he's, he's pretty good at this, but he's a little off on a few things. So they pull him aside, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. So they fill in some of the the dots for him. Well, that kind of transformed his life because in that conversation, it seems that they also brought up the the fact that Paul had been in Corinth and planted churches and had to head home and Corinth probably needed some help because immediately in verse 27, we're told that Apollos wished to cross over to Achaia, which is the region that Corinth is in. And the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples over in Corinth to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now let's pause right there. So we've got Paul over in the Galatian region and you've got Apollos over in Ephesus. You've got Paul, who's a native of Tarsus, and he's got a formal education. Uh, he is a, a, a very um, trained, learned Jew. And then you've got Apollos, who is Egyptian, and he came about the knowledge of Christ through someone preaching the gospel to him, and he wanted to share it to everybody, but he is unbelievably skilled and equipped at teaching. He's really, really good at teaching. He's a charismatic kind of guy. When he speaks, everybody's listening. Now Paul, he was a good speaker, but he was known more as a better writer. And so you've got Apollos now in a region where Paul had planted in Corinth. And what we find is that when Apollos heads over to Corinth, he's only there a few short weeks and he starts making a big impact on the church. Now, Luke doesn't go into this right now. The, prob- the reason why is probably because this letter hasn't been written yet. But what I wanna do is I wanna hit pause right there at verse 28, and I wanna jump over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 and 4. I'm not gonna read it. I want you to go and read it on your own. But that section of the letter that Paul wrote to Corinth starts to shed light on what happened when Apollos showed up in Corinth. When he gets there, he's very charismatic, and people start really following him and 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 really liking the way he's teaching and getting to the place where like I, I don't know that I can receive or learn from anybody unless it's Apollos. I've got to hear the gospel from this guy. I want him to teach, because he's he is really good at teaching the Old Testament. He connects dots, like oh, I didn't know there, I didn't know there was a dot. But that was like a speck, but you're connecting dots, and I'm seeing things I didn't see before. And so Paul, in his letter to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he identifies the fact that he has heard that there's an issue rising up in the church where people are starting to play favorites with speakers. There are actually some people who are saying, well, I'm a follower of Paul. Some people are saying, "Well, well, I'm a follower of Apollos. And we're we're told in 1 Corinthians 3 that jealousy and strife was starting to rise up because this church is starting to have an identity crisis. They weren't interested in following Jesus, they were interested in following a man. And this is what I want to spend a little time looking at today, because this isn't the last time that this starts bubbling to the surface. And when I say this, what I mean is this issue of our identity. Who are we? If we're going to explain, if I'm gonna introduce myself to somebody for the first time, what do we say about ourselves? What is, what is the thing in our life that is like most valuable? What, what labels do we carry? What one thing really defines you? What in this life do you love more than anything? If I had the unfortunate opportunity to preach at your funeral, what would I say about you? Afterwards, when the funeral's done and people are eating that like fried chicken out of a box and they're trying to like remember the things about you. What would they say about you? Would they say, man, he loved work more than anything. He loved sports more than anything. There was nothing more important to her than being a mom. What label, what is your identity? What is the thing that makes you? You. I'm gonna tease this out a little bit and talk about why this is so important. But identity is really important to the way that we live, and it's incredibly important to our culture. And one of the ways, as we start off today, that we find our identity in this life is through following specific people. Or, not just people, ideologies. That is the banner that flies over our head. What makes you, you? Well, what makes me, me is that I follow the teachings of this guy. Where I follow the support and the teachings and the the, the discipleship of this group. This entity really just kind of tells me how to think about things. But it doesn't stop there. We start to see that in Corinth. Corinth. It gets really bad to the point where we find out that Apollos actually wants nothing to do with it, so he actually leaves the church. But people and groups are not the only thing that we find our identity in. As we continue, we're going to meet a group of people who find their identity in an event. Something happened to me, and that makes me who I am. Let's go there. So go to 19, start in verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And that's when he found some disciples. Now we're not told that they're Jesus disciples, we're just told that they're disciples. Lots of people at this time were disciples. A a disciple is someone who just follows someone's teachings. So he meets a group of disciples as he's heading into Ephesus. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, no, we, we, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. And that person is Jesus. So you kind of, you miss the mark. If if your entire identity is wrapped up in this event of being baptized by John, you've missed it. Because John's entire ministry was about one thing. And it wasn't baptism. It was about preparing the way for Jesus. Baptism was a preparation. You are going to wash your sin because there is coming one who has the power to forgive you of your sins. And this is what Paul's main mission is. He's going into these regions and he's preaching the gospel. And what he's saying is there is a creator in the universe, there is a God who made us, he made everything. And he also set rules for how things are supposed to work. And we as the creation didn't like those rules so we broke those rules and one day we're gonna have to stand before that God and account for what we thought was better than what he asked. Now do you wanna stand before God and say, I'll take the punishment I will take whatever punishment you wanna send my way for breaking your rules, or do you wanna step back and say, I'll let this man take my punishment for me? And That man is Jesus, and the punishment he took was death. But he beat death by raising back to life on the third day, and that was just the first fruits of what's coming next. We're all, if we trust Jesus, to be the one who takes the punishment for us, we will all get in that line of one day, the promise is that we also will be resurrected into a new life and we will spend eternity not floating around like little chubby baby angels up in heaven, but living here in a resurrected world, a new heaven and a new earth. That's the promise. And this is what Paul is preaching. And he's saying, if you thought that the pinnacle of who you were was just getting dunked underwater, you have missed it. So when Paul had laid his hands on them, excuse excuse me, verse five, after hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They're like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, give me some of that. Baptize me again in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying the same thing that happened at the day of Pentecost. There were about 12 men at that point, all of them now Christians. Just a Continue down to about verse 10. And he entered into the synagogue and for about three months he spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelieving, speaking the evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, and daily reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was like, kind of a, kind of like a teaching uh, location. It was kind of like a, a, a guy who owned a building called the hall of Tyrannus and would rent it out to local teachers. And Paul... Rented out that building from about 11 to 3 or 4 in the afternoon. That's what church tradition says. And the reason why I did that is because the work day over here is that when it's the hottest part of the day, you don't work. You start the morning at around 6 o'clock in the morning. And by 10 o'clock, everyone takes a nice break. It's like lunchtime. It's like four hours. And then people pick lunch, they pick up work again in the afternoon after the sun is starting to go down. It's not so hot at like five and they work till like nine in the afternoon. So Paul is taking advantage. He's working during both of those periods and he's preaching the gospel in this location. And he does this for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Guess what other, re- uh, other churches are in this region of Asia, Asia? All seven of the churches referenced in the book of Revelation chapter one through three. Those churches, all of them, were planted during this period of time when Paul was in Asia. Now, let's back up to this experience that these disciples had. I personally hold to the view that these were disciples of John the Baptist. They're called disciples. They were committed to the baptism of John if I'm connecting those dots, I see that these guys are disciples of John the Baptist. And we see that even after Jesus was, a, was baptized by John, John still had disciples. Now, I don't, this is one of those like, things I don't understand about the Bible. How is it that the guy that you follow, like, man, if I'm a disciple of John the Baptist, I'm like, that's to do like, I'm following this guy, okay? What he says goes. And you're out there in the water one day and John's baptizing people and he's eating locusts and honey and he's just a wild dude. And all of a sudden he's dunking somebody and he looks across the and he's just like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if I'm a disciple, I'm just like, "What? the who, the what? The who that does what now? and he baptizes Jesus, and then this this dove comes down, and then a voice from heaven says, this is my son. I don't know how from that day forward, I'm not immediately a disciple of Jesus. How do you not say, like, John, it's been a blast? But 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 when you say, like, I must decrease so that he may increase, cool, I'm gonna increase right on over here, and I'm gonna follow him. How is it that when John the Baptist is arrested, he still has disciples to send to Jesus and say, hey, are you still the one? How, does, how is literally any of his disciples still there? Because there is a pull to form our identity in following a person. Yeah. But there's not just a pull in follow, finding our identity and following a person. There's also this pull in finding our identity in an event, in the, 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 the thing that John was doing. And this, man, this is all over us right? Because some of you, something happened to you when you were in middle school and that event has shaped who you are today. You still make decisions today because of that thing that happened 27 years ago. Maybe you were assaulted or sinned against and that event, it has shaped who you are? There was an event, man. You you were living your life. Something you 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 had the spouse, and you were married. And then something happened. and Maybe the Lord took her or or him, and, and the, your spouse died. Or maybe there was a divorce, and, and then all of a sudden you, you you're you're not a human being anymore. You're a divorcee. That's it. That's all you are. That's all you feel when you walk into a room. That's your identity. And what Paul does when he meets people who wrap their identity in a person or an ideology or an event, the first thing he does, is he's, he starts leading them away from that identity and pointing them to Jesus. And he's saying, look, what Jesus came to do is, is offer you a new identity. What he wants for you is to be so much more than the guy who got divorced, What he wants so much more for you is the young lady who was assaulted. Like that, he can give you something so much richer if you let him. And what is that thing? What is the offer that Paul gives to these guys? He says, your identity can be found in Jesus. we find this in Galatians 3 26 it says in Christ you are now sons of God the identity that's being offered Paul offers it here and we'll see it a couple other times but the identity is that you don't have to find who you are in this world in who you've met or who you followed or things that have happened to you, you can find your identity in one truth, that you have been adopted into God's family and you belong to Him. Who are you? You're a child of God. That's who you are and everything flows out of that. But it doesn't stop with just people and ideologies and events continues into methods let's go to verse 11 let's see how experiences and methodology can shape our identity this is a wild story Um, buckle up so at this point God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul Now he's spending two years two plus years actually in Ephesus and while he's there he's working in the mornings and he's working in the afternoons and he's preaching during lunchtime it was a busy schedule and while he's out there building you know making tents and working he's sweating and he's taking these these rags and he's wiping the sweat and then he'd throw him down on the ground grab another rag and he, he was a working man so he had all these handkerchiefs that were covered in sweat well, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were being carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out. Did you catch that? Paul wasn't selling prayer cloths on television. <laughs> like, you, you know, for, for just a donation, like at the thousand dollar level, you get Paul's sweat. These people were coming behind while Paul was working, grabbing his aprons and thinking, man, like if I could just get this to grandma, it might do something. And that desire, God honored it. Look, this, there's no, this isn't magic. This isn't like if you touch something that the holy man touched, that that's, that's does, doesn't work like that. What's happening here is these people are deeply rooted in witchcraft and magic. They are convinced that there is methods tied to the way you do these things. And if I could just reproduce this method, I can get some results. So I've seen Paul do some of these things, so I'm gonna do the same thing that Paul is doing. And if I could just get some of Paul on this situation, then things would change. And at some points, God honors that. He's like, I see your heart, and I understand what you're trying to do. You're completely out in left field, but we can work on that. I'm gonna heal grandma, because I love you. And you're gonna know me and you're gonna trust me. So we're just gonna work with this. But like this is a culture deeply rooted in magic and methodology and God is honoring this, but he doesn't doesn't honor it for everybody. Let's continue. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, itinerant means traveling, so big business in Ephesus, I guess, because you've got an entire career of traveling Jewish exorcists. What do you do? I just go to town to town and cast demons out. Wow, lucrative? (laughs) In Ephesus it is. There's (laughs) demons in everybody. So these itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Why were they doing this? because they saw some of the garments that Paul had touched and sweat on, literally just getting in the presence of somebody, and that demonic spirit is leaving. Is it because Paul's sweat is magic? No, it's because God is doing the work and he's honoring the heart cry of the person who desperately wants to be freed from a demonic spirit. But these people are looking at it saying, if I could do, okay, so there's a method here and I can make money off of this. I can make a name for myself if I just reproduce Paul's methods. So let's just go ahead and start casting out demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, we've talked last week about how the demonic works. Demon spirits can possess people and speak through them. Look, this isn't imaginary. This isn't, like, this isn't made up stuff. It's not fairy book material. Like, Uh, fairy tale material. This, this is like, this is how it, it really is. Like there is an entire world that you can't see in the spirit realm and it's filled with angels and it's filled with demons and demonic spirits, demons, they love nothing more than just torturing and polluting God's creation. See, when God created man, he reached down into the earth. He formed him with his own hands and then he breathed life into him because we're image bearers and there is nothing that the kingdom of darkness loves more than manipulating and perverting God's creation, the thing that he put himself into, image bearers. And so these demonic spirits you see at the time of Jesus, you're seeing it here, they would fill human beings and then they would talk through these human beings. So you've got these traveling Jewish exorcists who are coming into town and they're saying, hey, we want you to leave this person's body in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, some of the people who were doing it, there were seven sons of this Jewish high priest named Sceva who were doing this. So when they had said this to this person who was filled with a demonic spirit, the evil spirit answered them, look, oh, <laughs> okay, now we're, all, we're across the line. Look, you don't, you don't wanna be having conversations with demon spirits, all right? he comes in and the demon spirit answers look Jesus I know and Paul I recognize but who are you who who do you think you are using this method to exercise authority over me and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them oh we got trouble now (laughs) Remember, there were seven of them, and this one guy who's possessed with a demon leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, uh, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this event became known to all the residents of Ephesus. I bet (laughs) you don't need the internet for that story to travel. Both Jews and Greeks, they heard it, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. Seven guys who tried to use some method to control demon spirits translated in Jesus worship. Why is that? Because in verse 18, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. That's really important. I'll come back to it in just a second. And a number of those who practice magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it came to about 50,000 pieces of silver. What's that in today's money? A lot. <laughs> Millions of dollars. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now the details of the story are wild, but the core about it is still identity. You've got these people taking these handkerchiefs and other people are reading this event and saying, okay, well, there's a methodology we can follow and we can make a name for ourselves and build our career by using what we see Paul doing. And the results were catastrophic for the sons of Sceva But in God's mercy, it was a wake up call for the people in Ephesus. Why? I told you the beginning. Ephesus was a town filled with magic and witchcraft. People in this town loved superstition. Their entire identity was wrapped up in the fact that I can control the weather, I can control things in my life if I just follow this process. I can do this thing and get this result. So when Paul comes in to preach the gospel, hey, follow Jesus, what they hear initially, the believers is, God wants you to follow him, cool, so I can, like he'll bless me and take care of me and he'll do things for me if I just do this for him. Because that's what I'm hearing. Because that's what I grew up with. My entire identity is wrapped up in methods and experiences and how I can get things to work for me. So when you tell me all I got to do is follow this new God, I'm going to apply the same method from the old God to this new God. So I'll follow Jesus, but I'll do it the way that I followed this idol to Artemis. What does that look like? that looks like making the sacrifices and doing all of the work and paying the money and hurting your body or going to temple prostitutes or doing whatever is necessary in order to honor the God because then he owes me. Because look how much I did for you and now you owe me. And then all of a sudden they hear this story that these seven boys got chased out of a house completely naked because they tried to use this methodology to get results and all of a sudden things are starting to seek in. I can't live with the same identity I've previously had and also follow Jesus. When Paul preached the first time, I became a believer, I followed, but but I was convinced that I, I know how to worship gods, I've been doing it my whole life. I got one sitting on my fireplace at home and I know how to worship this God to get what I want out of it and now I just replace the statue with a cross and then I can just, just devote myself and do it and then he'll, he'll do for me if I do for him. And then I, and, and then I hear the story and I'm realizing that, that what I'm bringing to the table has no value. My entire identity It means nothing. What's actually happening is Jesus is saying, I want you to bring that identity and I want you to leave it here and I'm gonna give you a new one. I can't live with two identities. You can't live with the identity of following people, you can't live with the identity of following some event, you can't live with the identity of, of having some experience in your life or trying to work God up into some methodology. You can't conjure up God's presence by doing the things you did last week when you came to worship. He doesn't follow you, you follow him. He sets the rules. You follow them or you don't follow them, but that's not where it ends. Because this offer for trading in your identity doesn't just stop at the person or the event or the experience or the methodology, it goes even deeper and that's where I wanna finish today, go to Acts. 19, verse 21. We're about to meet a group of people who find their identity in their careers. They find their identity in their ethnicity. And they find their identity in sexuality. And all three of them have no place in following Jesus. So let's go to verse 21, it says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, excuse me, and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he has decided, it's time for me to go back to Jerusalem and see Rome, but he doesn't leave there immediately. He sends, verse 22, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a little while. So he's still in Ephesus. He sends two of his um, disciples, his assistants, up to Macedonia, over to Philippi. He says, "I'll, I'll be there in a little while. I'm gonna stay in Asia just a little bit longer. I wanna make sure Ephesus is good before I head out of town. And about that same time, verse 23, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's what they called Christianity back then, the way. There was a man named Demetrius, and he was a silversmith, And he made silver shrines of Artemis. And it brought no little business to the craftsmen. And these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know from that this business, we have all of our wealth. Our identity is wrapped up in this career. And this career is tied into Artemis making idols. Verse 26, and you see and hear, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger not only to this trade of ours, that may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be discounted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship." Who is Artemis? Artemis was this female god of fertility. Her statue was a lady, seductively standing, covered in breasts. Like imagine if that's your job, to like make those idols on a daily basis. And so you've got this guy and all of his trade, and he's saying our identity in our career is is called into question, our identity in this town and sexuality is called into question, and now our identity of our ethnicity is called into, because we are Ephesians. Our identity is deeply rooted in sexuality. Our identity is deeply rooted in ethnicity and who we are from from Ephesus. We are Ephesus. The whole world worships Artemis. This is who we are. If we don't have this, we don't have anything. If I don't have my job, I've got nothing. And that's what they're arguing here. Verse 28, when they had heard this, they were enraged because they're saying, Demetrius, you're right. And so they started crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and uh, Aristarchus and the Macedonians who were with Paul's companions in travel so they grabbed everybody who was with Paul except Paul they couldn't find him when the mob started descending and when Paul wished to go in among the crowd the disciples said don't don't do it nope they're not we're not going to let you And some of the uh, Asiarchs who were friends of his sent him to uh, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So they're pulling him out and some cried out one thing. So now we're back in the mob and some were crying out another for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. (laughs) It's the beauty of a mob. Here's the beauty. You don't even need to have a mob anymore. All you need is that like one million followers that somebody's on Instagram and all of a sudden we've got a mob online and we're just gonna cancel people left and right. Well, some of the crowd prompted Alexander whom the Jews had put forward. Who's Alexander? Well, he's just this guy that the Jews are like, hey Alexander, go speak on behalf of like, we don't like the way, we don't like Christians either. So jump in, If if they're trying to get rid of Christians, like let's get on that bandwagon. So Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they realized he was a Jew, well, well, well hold on, well, aren't you all just following the same God? We don't want anything to do with you. In about two hours, they all cry with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd down, men of Ephesus, this is what he said, men of Ephesus, who is, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis. We, this is our ethnicity, this is who we are, this is what makes us special. Who, who in the world doesn't know that this is who we are and what we do? In fact, we're keepers of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Well, that's a whole nother thing. That's why this city was so special because a meteor hit and they thought God was sending some kind of special idol to it and they built a temple around it and now this is what makes them special as a people. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet. Don't do anything rash. Like, calm down. Everybody knows who we are. Everybody knows what we're about. You've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsman with him have a complaint against anybody, the courts are open and there are procouncils. Let them bring charges against one another. Do this the formal way. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly because if, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government. Yeah, we're Ephesus, and yeah, we've got something special here, but if you keep this nonsense up, Rome's gonna come in and shut us down. Since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now let's pause right there. Let's, that's where we're, we'll finish. Now I said a moment ago that Ephesus was the central location of this temple of Artemis. This city gave the people an identity because it was filled with craftsmen who built idols for Artemis. People found their identity in their job. But it didn't just stop there, they also found their identity in the fact that their city was special because this is where the rock fell. but was also special to them because they found their identity in the sexuality that was surrounding Artemis. Everything about this city is what made them special. And what happens when Jesus shows up, when well, Paul shows up and starts preaching Jesus, is that people start realizing, I can't hold on to the fact that I'm in Ephesian, the city of Artemis, and also follow Jesus. I can't hold on to the fact that my identity is deeply rooted in my sexuality and who I'm attracted to and also follow Jesus. My identity can't be wrapped in my, in my career. The thing that can't be said of me when I'm, when, when I'm dead and the preacher is preaching my funeral is that he loved nothing more than work. It was his favorite thing. It's what he loved, about, he treasured it more than anything. And also follow Jesus, because the offer Jesus says, you're to you treasure me above everything else. What I'm offering is like, like a treasure buried in the field and the person who finds it is the guy who sells everything just to get that treasure in the field. So the question I wanna ask us today is if the city of Ephesus came to a realization that you can't have two identities, have we come to that same realization? Are we living with the reality that you can't serve two masters? that Jesus is offering this new identity and the fact that we try to also live with an identity of things that have done, been done to us or we live with this identity of, of I follow this person or this ideology or I follow this methodology or, or uh, uh, my identity is wrapped up in sexuality and, and, and this is who I am or my identity is wrapped up in my career. Are we coming to the realization that these two things can't live next to each other? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that they came to the realization that these two things can't live simultaneously. You can't have two identities or four identities or 90 identities. And I've alluded to why, but let me be abundantly clear why you can't live with more than one identity. Because your identity dictates everything else about your life. Who you are, your identity, this thing on the inside of you, it controls everything. Who you are dictates what you think is important. Your identity determines what you spend your money on, what you spend your time on, what you spend your leisure on, what you spend your, your work time on. It determines how you vote. It's everything. And so if Jesus is saying, follow me, and, and I will give you the identity of a child of God, then that identity informs everything else. If God has adopted me into his family, then I have to live like I'm a part of his family. I have to vote like I'm part of his family. I have to eat like I'm part of his family. I have to spend my time like I'm part of his family. I don't get to choose what I think is best because he is telling me what is best, and I'm gonna follow his lead. And what this world is offering you is the same thing that the world has always offered you. Come to us and we will give you an identity. We'll give you an identity um, in your career so that the greatest thing you can do with your life is make as much money as you possibly can. Well, if Jesus says, treasure me above all else, you can't also treasure money above all else. Here's another one. If Jesus says, you're mine, that's enough. Who you are is the way I made you. Then a false ideology that comes in and says, I'm gonna give you an identity wrapped in your sexuality. You can choose to be anything you want. You were born a man, you don't like it, you can be born, you, you can change, you can be a woman. Doesn't matter, be who you want to be. You can't do that and also follow Jesus. I'm not saying it, he's saying it. This is what the Bible is saying. That when you come to Jesus, you get a completely new identity. That's the beauty of resurrection. The old you and all of its nasty gets put in the grave and you get raised into a new creature. But here's the thing, you can't let the ways that the old creature problem solved and handled things dictate how you problem solve and handle things today. Hallelujah. And here's the thing about identity. It's formed when you're very young. This is the reason why there's a big fight as to what is taught in schools. Here's, here's Listen, most of you are still trying to get over the fact that something happened when you were in middle school or in elementary school. Somebody told you that your hair was ugly and you still think your hair is ugly. Why? Because the moment it happened was that time when you were being being forged, your identity was being forged, who you are, what you think about yourself. Somebody's like, your teeth look like a horse. Every morning when you're brushing your teeth, that kid, the seven-year-old, my teeth. Oh, no, they don't. Well, they kind of do. <laughs> right? Why? Because our identity is formed when we're so young. And if we're not careful, when the Bible tells us that we need to disciple our kids and raise them up in the way that they should, why, did, why? Why do we have to disciple our kids? Why can't we disciple our old people? You ever think of that? Because discipling our kids is where identity is formed. When Jesus comes and says, I know that you were raised with a broken identity and that you are convinced that you're going to find happiness in this world through all of these different options, through something that has happened to you, or, or by following this person, you're going to find some peace. I'm telling you, take all of that and just bury it and follow me, and I will give you the only identity that you will ever need, and that is you are mine. You belong to me. I know your name. So that's the question. That's what we're wrestling with today and that's what we'll wrestle with for the rest of our lives. And this is what we'll wrestle with as we preach the gospel to people. The question is not, do you know Jesus? The question for our generation is, what gives you your identity? What are you living from? Who's who's telling you what you are and what value you have? Because there's a God who's offering something infinitely better than any offer you've ever received up until this point. There's a God in heaven who made everything we see. He sets the rules and he sets the value. And he's telling you that you are worth more than the things this world tells you is your identity. So have we come to that realization today? Are we at the same place that the Christians in Ephesus were at? Verse 18, it says, many of them who were now believers sort of confessing and divulging their practices and bring, bringing their magic arts and books together because they finally understood i can't serve two masters i have to decide who is giving my identity because i can't have two let's pray